right. You guys can hear me? All right. Good afternoon, Desert Cities Church. Good afternoon. Amen. Amen. I would love to hear the energy and see uh, see us excited to be uh, with each other today. I just want to uh, first kind of just start off by uh, by saying how grateful I am for all the people that were up on stage today, uh, really helping this service go through. These are people that I, I, I honestly, thinking about it as Jason was singing, are just people that I've been very grateful for. You know, let's give it up for Bianca for that amazing welcome. You know, the De La Garza's have been such a, a guide for uh, Alicia and I in our time here in the desert. So seeing her up here in her element, getting us excited, um, and I'm just so grateful for the De La Garza family. Uh, and give it up for Jason with the worship. Amen. You know, last week he preached an incredible lesson and he's up here uh, sounding like he's about to release like the next best folk Christian album uh, of 2023. Uh, and so it's cool to know that we're lucky to really have someone like Jason and Justine. They're just an incredibly talented couple. So we're blessed. We're blessed here. And then obviously we, we love Scott, right? We love Scott. You know, something that I, was really cool as the, the, the scripture that he was sharing for contribution uh, really ties into the lesson uh, that we're going to look at uh, today. And so obviously we've been looking at the, uh, the book, Emotionally Healthy Relationships, uh, and if you've been following along with us, we, we're focused on this idea or this chapter that revolves around this aspect of fighting cleanly, fighting cleanly. And it's kind of funny because of all the different series or, or lesson plans that the staff has done, I've always gotten like the easy ones and like Scott has gotten all the hard ones and he's like made comments about that time and time again. And I feel like this is a really hard one for me, Right. Like, you give the youngest uh, person on staff uh, the opportunity to speak about how to fight cleanly. Uh, but when we think about that, uh, that idea of fighting cleanly, I think when we hear that, it's something that we all want to achieve, right? It's, also, it's something that we want to be good at. Uh, and I, when I think about my relationships, and obviously my, uh, my relationship with uh, my wife, you know, Alicia and I, when we were dating, I navigated the relationship... Uh, in its first early stages, just extremely prideful uh, in the way that I engaged with conflict. Uh, and not in the sense that I was stubborn or I was being uh, or, or, or being like sinfully prideful, but I glorified in this uh, in, in, in the fact that, you know, the, there's we, we didn't really have a lot of fights or disagreements came few and far between. And if there were some, or if we did argue, then we resolved it rather quickly. And so giving her the benefit of the doubt, you know, that phrase, giving someone the benefit of the doubt, I literally thought I was like the best person at it. I thought I was like a superpower of mine, you know, and I would teach, I would disciple a young man, you know, you just got to get the benefit of the doubt, man. Like, you know what I mean? And I prided myself and then I got married. You know, and then I, and then I, I said I do, and and we were we're, we're going through our lives together uh, and trying to glorify God in our marriage, and it it went from wanting to quickly say I'm sorry or resolve conflict to now like literally creating battle plans on how I'm going to win the next argument or coming up with strategies. You know, if I say this, I might I might get Alicia to to sur- surrender a little bit. You know. Uh, and so it hit me like a bus when I realized that dating was just 
practice for what's to come, you know. And so it's funny because I'm, I'm young in my marriage and a lot of you veterans are like, oh, yeah, you, you'll, there's going to be another step for sure, right? Uh, but I think it's an incredibly healthy realization when we embrace that conflict is everywhere. Conflict can happen anytime in any place and that's going to be the title of our lesson today is this idea of redefining connection. And so this is a very hard task. I'm not going to redefine the word connection because there's a biblical type of connection that we're going to be looking at. But uh, you, you'll see based off of what we're going to be talking about today uh, of why it's titled redefining connection. But before we uh, jump on in, let's go ahead and pray uh, and settle with God today. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this time to be together. So grateful for uh, my brothers and sisters here in this room. Lord, these are relationships that have stood the test of time. These have been connections, God, that have built family and community here in this church. Lord, these are relationships that you call us to cherish. Lord, when conflict happens, when tension arises, Lord, uh, you call us to humble ourselves, to see and develop perspective as we focus on your son. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what we do today. Lord, I pray that we can be inspired by Jesus, that we can see the life that he lived. Lord, that it can help strengthen and bolster our relationships uh, to become the family that you want us to be. I'm grateful for this time. Allow your spirit to speak through your words today. Pray for everything in mighty son's name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, right, conflict is everywhere. It can happen. Conflict is a part of life. It's the nature of our fallen world. We think about our friendships, the people that uh, we cherish, the relationships that we value, our family, right? Bianca talked about family drama. I know you guys have related with her thinking about Drama with your kids, drama with your spouses, right? And conflict can happen even inside the home. But also conflict can happen with your partners, uh, the, your, your love relationships, right? I know husbands and wives are like, amen to that, right? Conflict is there, right? And, and you know, when I think about conflict, it's, it's, not, it's not great, right? And there's a couple reasons why uh, dealing with conflict is just not at all what we want to do each and every day because really conflicts just make relationships so much harder. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Right? And I know some of you guys might have thought this before, but when, when there's tension between maybe your friend, maybe your spouse, uh, pro- hopefully not your spouse, I think maybe you think about, man, how much easier would it be if I did not have that person in my life? Right. Or if I just like lived alone. So that's why I said not hopefully not your spouse. Right. But I know that we've had like people in our lives where we built relationships with them and something happens and there's tension. And I'm like, uh, if you were just not in my life in the beginning, then all this would have been better. Right. And there's a Harvard study uh, uh, in the Harvard Gazette uh, titled Good Genes Are Nice, But Joy Is Better. And I want uh, I want us to read this little excerpt uh, and I'll read it to you. It says. Close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives, the study revealed. So so they did a study with hundreds of different uh, Harvard students, or I think Harvard men and women, and they found out that close relationships are what, keep, are what keeps people happy. It says here, those ties protect people from lives' discontents 
help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. Not crazy? Right? So what the study is showing us that even when conflict makes these relationships difficult, or tension makes relationships hard to hold or to grasp, God designed us for relationships if we want to experience joy. Right? So we need to think about that, right? But again, another reason why we don't like conflict is conflict is just not fun. It kills the vibe. It kills the mood, right? Nobody wants to live in conflict. You know, conflict can be draining in all aspects. You know, it hits us emotionally and takes a toil in our heart. Mentally, it's just tasking, constantly having to work through issue after issue. Uh, but even physically, right? Does anyone, anyone get headaches when you're like in a really deep argument? Right. Oh, we get those, man. Then y'all like raise your hands so quick. Right. So we, we get these like headaches. And so physically, it's just not fun when we feel this pressure in these times. There's nothing enjoyable about conflict. But facing conflict is nothing new in the Bible. In fact, we see that conflict is rather a tool that God utilizes when calling mankind to rise above the world. No one's journey in the Old Testament and the New Testament has been easy and evasive of conflict and drama. Right? We think about Abraham and Lot, Isaac and the Ishmaelites, Jacob and Esau. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph had that family drama. Right? David and Saul, Paul and Barnabas, even Jesus faced conflict. Right? If it's from his brothers not believing that he was the Messiah. Imagine being Jesus going home and having to deal with all those naysayers. That is your family, right? But even Jesus facing backlash with the religious community, this ongoing motif of this seesaw of conflict and resolution going back and forth, I think it's something worth really looking into the Bible. So this task of fighting cleanly is such an interesting idea Because as we can learn from our biblical ancestors is that really conflict is a part of life. Conflict is unavoidable. And I really believe that this is a hard concept to grasp in our church and in our Christian community. Because it is our nature when when we feel conflict that we have this desire to just wall it out. We have desire to just kind of create these barriers against any type of conflict. Or we, we want to strive for peace at all costs, and we want to create an, an environment just of peace and no conflict. And then we start to build this urgency to want to fix things quickly and hastily. You know, and a key observation that I've had is that we've had to learn how to handle these conflicts within our church rather, rather pretty fast. And I feel like Problem after problem has hit us like a freight train in the past couple of years and that we've felt like, honestly, we haven't experienced much as a church other than conflict. Am I right? And it's not by all means an easy journey. And we can clearly see that some of those draining features of dealing with conflict like we discussed before can happen and, and, and affect even our families, our friendships, our relationships. I think about the conflict between different generations in our church or the different ideologies or how maybe sometimes politics can come into our church. 
You know, our church has been hit hard with having to deal with conflict. I think about the article that came out, right? And it's almost like reading more and more updates about it. It just feels like solving conflict is just this slow and unsure process. And I'm like, where, where is God in the midst of it all? And in our many discussions, and we're learning to brace it together, you know, we have channeled a Christ-centered love that is built through understanding and empathizing and compassion. And that we need to celebrate this. You know, I'm so grateful for the community that we have because I think that's been our focus is how can we be a church that just empathizes and loves and connects with one another? And I think we've done an incredible job so far. You know, and I want to celebrate that. However, I believe that it is also our call to channel another key aspect of this Christ-centered love, which we can emulate through the way that even Jesus was able to challenge people. And what do I mean by that? You know, I want maybe for us to maybe think about, you know, what instances have we read in our times in the word in Jesus's interactions with others that were challenging, that were a little hard? You know, as a bringer of peace, did Jesus avoid conflict altogether? Or how did Jesus handle the tensions and differences that he uh, he faced? And even Scott kind of talked about that in this passage, right? So our goal today is to lean into this aspect of Jesus' character. So I'm not going to give you the how to uh, fight cleanly. I'm not going to give you guys practicals on how to do it. My goal today is I want you guys to really envision and see Jesus through the word today on how he was able to interact with people and how Jesus engaged with conflict. And responding to conflict with emotional maturity takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of practice. So it's important that in this process we look to Jesus for guidance. That Jesus is the true peacemaker. And our hope is that when doing this, we can be taught how to strengthen our relationships, not only in the church, but also the relationships in our community, and the relationships in our family, and the relationships that we care about. Amen? You guys ready? Okay, amen. So I have two focal points. Is that Jesus was... Defined, alright? Jesus was defined. And I'll explain to me, I'll explain to you guys what, uh, what that means. But let's all turn together on, to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 27. I'm not gonna have it up there, so I want you guys to turn, uh, turn your Bibles with me. And I want to, I want to hear an Amen when all y'all are there. It's like, wow, I haven't said Amen in a while. I'm turning into a passage. Amen. amen. Alright. Okay, so we, we know this story. We love this story. We're very familiar with it. It says in chapter, or in verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false, false testimony. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and asked and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But then he was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. 
And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus responded again and said to them, children, how hard it is, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Amen. So we can see clearly there's a conflict that is brewed up between Jesus and this rich, uh, rich man, right, who desires to follow him. And sometimes conflict doesn't always uh, have to be angry or full of dispute. But we can see Jesus work with this young man to just reflect. And we know that the end of this man's story, at least in this context, is that really they were on opposite ends of the spectrum in this dilemma. Right? There was a contention that was happening. And I think this is an opportunity for us to really see clearly how Jesus was able to be defined. And what do I mean by that? I think being defined has two parts. All right? The first part is how we define ourselves. So think about who we are, what we think, what we believe, what we want, uh, what we will or won't do. Right? These are things that we've understood about ourselves, that we've reflected with God about ourselves. But the other part about being defined is how we allow others to define themselves. How we allow others and listen to whom they say they are and what they think and what they believe, even when those things are different than us. Right? And Jesus in the story was able to display both parts of this idea and how he was able to draw clearly this path of salvation for this man, but also lovingly let him walk away. You know, and as a reader, we wonder why the opposite of a success story is present in the Bible, because really this is a tragic story when we think about the rich young man. But it's an incredible lesson, I believe, in ministry and discipleship and what Jesus was displayed here because Jesus did start off by defining clearly who he was and what his mission is. And Jesus was not shy and he was tactful and clear about who he was to others. And there are many examples even in the first bits of the Gospel of John. Think about in uh, chapter 5, verse 18. It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John 8, 56, 58, it's talking about Abraham and how Jesus calls himself the I am. And this is an allusion to the Old Testament and and what I am signifies. And John 10, it says, I and the father are one. And the Jews picked up stones against the stone and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the father for which of them Are you stoning me? And so he's even showing the religious leaders that he has this connection with God unlike anyone in this world. So Jesus clearly defined who he was and what he was here to do. But at the same time, he never controlled his hearers or manipulate his listeners to agree with him. Instead, like this rich young man, he asked questions. And invited others to conversation to help them see where they stood in relation to Jesus. 
right? And so the way Jesus displays himself really exudes this confidence and this almost, um, uh, this, this sureness, right? But also faith that those who truly believe will understand him. So it's this beautiful exchange that Jesus has. Because I couldn't imagine, right, Jesus storming in the synagogue and just say, I am the Messiah, believe in me or die, right? Like, Jesus never did that. Jesus never forced people to believe that he was the Messiah. He never coerced anyone to believe that he was who he said he was, but he was clearly defined, he clearly defined who he was, but he also allowed others to define themselves. And he had many who developed conflicts with him. And not once did he force those who disagreed with him to change their mind because Jesus created influence through compassion, empathy, and time. And this is essential to understand. Because for us, rather than defining ourselves or allowing others to define themselves, and especially with those who disagree with us, I think we, we resort to other tactics when we deal with people who we disagree, right? I think we resort to blaming or developing resentment or bitterness, maybe name calling or creative or creating like divisive space or distance between relationships. You know, or if we have some sort of influence on them or if they're uh, or, or if we've poured out time and love to these people and developed a close relationship with them, sometimes we can resort to even controlling them or doing things or manipulating them maybe in our words or in our actions. I think it's easy to focus on how others are wrong and want so badly to persuade them, to want them to change. And people will misunderstand you. People will question you. Things may come up where differences are made known in your relationship. And when things get tense, we resort to what being human is in this world is that when you hurt me, I will edge you out of my life because I don't want you to hurt me again. That's what, that's how the world deals with hurt is they distance themselves from that. So what do we do with the world and what can we do with the relationships in this room? And to think about this question, you know, how did Jesus mend relationships when conflict breaks them? How did Jesus mend relationships when conflict breaks them? So Jesus was defined, but he was also connected. Jesus was connected. You know, we want to connect with one another, right? We want to strive for deep connection, but it's going to require a lot of emotional maturity. Can I get an amen on that? Right? So the real challenge when dealing with others that we may disagree with, the real challenge is persevering. To honor the relationship despite the difference. Right? So the real challenge is how can I even keep the relationship when it, when it may not be worth it or when troubles happen? You know, and I'm certain that we've had experience with others that disagree with us. I know that we have these people in our lives and when we take opposing sides, conversations or a dynamic with them can kind of resemble a game of tug of war. You know, and the more we try to force others to see our perspective is when we start to question if the relationship is even worth building. Or we become so disconnected with these people that almost are, uh, that we start kind of being like superficial when we're around them. You know, there were many times that I would walk into church and I would see Brother X or Sister X and like 
kind of just give them a smile and like, all right, like, good to see you, you know, and, and, and go sit down in my own little corner with all my other friends. And there, there's this like spirit of like superficial exchanges, right? But Jesus sets this incredible example and in not only engaging with those who didn't understand him, but his ability to stay connected with those who didn't understand him. Right. Those who didn't agree with his mission, those who tried to oppose him at every turn in every account of Jesus life. When we think about the Pharisees, they sought to kill him or to mess with him in every corner. And yet I find it fascinating how there are several moments in the Bible where Jesus dined with the Pharisees. And it was a high honor to eat with the religious leaders or the teachers of the law at the time. But no smart person would agree to want to have dinner with their murderers, right? And Jesus knew what was going to happen at the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to be scorned with shame. Jesus knew that people were going to disagree with him. But yet Jesus RSVP'd yes to any time he had a dinner with the Pharisees. You know what I mean? Like, isn't that crazy thinking about that? And even on the cross, he connected with his enemies by asking his father to forgive them. Jesus knew the people within its impact. Jesus knew the relationships and yet connected with them. And I think about a key relationship that was very rocky. And it's Jesus and Peter. And Peter's relationship with Jesus was very special. Jesus loved Peter. And he, uh, and as observers of this relationship from start to finish, we know that Peter betrays Jesus at the end when he's, when Jesus is about to endure the cross. Uh, but we even see moments before that that really he starts to kind of undermine Jesus a little bit because he's just human, right? And so I, I, I thought about all the different passages that I remember of Peter's failures or Peter's shortcomings. And if I was Peter in this moment, I would probably feel very insecure, right? Thinking about, man, if I had a list of all my shortcomings, it would probably be longer than this. Right, but Peter was a, a was an apostle. Peter was walked by walked with Jesus and there's so many different shortcomings that uh, Peter had. I think about in Mark 10:13, where uh, Peter shooed away different children that were trying to be with Jesus, and Jesus corrected him, right? Or in Matthew 14:22, uh, Peter fails to walk on water, and it, this was a test for faith for Peter. Or in Luke 22:24, where uh, Peter and some other disciples were trying to debate who was the greatest and who was going to sit on the on the the right hand of Jesus. And Peter had this selfish ambition and started to argue. Think about all the ways that even he resisted Jesus. Think about like uh, where in Matthew 16, right, where we know that he got rebuked by Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. Right. And I can't imagine what it would be like for Peter to hear those words from Jesus, but being severely rebuked like that. But there are so many other uh, other ways that we can see his shortcomings. But this is not to down Peter. This is not to show that Peter was this whack apostle, right? But these passages really highlight how feeble we can be as followers of Christ. How, how much we could also fail like Peter. But despite these failures, Jesus never rejected Peter. He never turned away Peter. But he only called him higher into deeper goodness. And as we learn and grow in connection with Jesus, we too can also learn to grow deeper in Jesus' goodness. Amen. Because he nurtures the relationships. 
He nurtures those connections that choose to position themselves in close proximity to Him. So that as we work on our imperfections, as we work on our shortcomings, that we can mirror the perfection of Jesus. So how did Jesus handle conflict and those who challenged Him? Jesus was both defined, but He was also connected. And it's very difficult to do two at the same time. To be both defined and to be both connected. And we often give up our connections to people who disagree with us in order to hold on to our position or our convictions. And we give up our convictions and we kind of forget who we are when we strive to kind of mold ourselves to the connections that we try to keep. Right? So there's always this kind of tug of war. But I love this passage in 1 Peter 4, 8. And this is uh, the voice uh, translation, not the show. But it says, most of all, love each other steadily and unselfishly. I'm going to say that again. Most of all, love each other steadily and unselfishly because love makes up for many faults. Isn't that amazing? Right? When I think about steadily and unselfishly, when I think about steadily, I think about this photo right here. Right? A, a boat in open uh, in open water, but the waves are, are, are rocking a little bit. I, raise your hand if you have like a, a, a fear of deep open ocean. Am I the only one? Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. All right. So if you ask me to go deep sea fishing, it's, it's a flat out no. But no, I'm trying to connect with you, but not deep sea fishing. All right. But I think about how th- when, when in that passage it says uh, steadily, I think about a boat in a rocky ocean because I think the waves really symbolize the conflict we may experience in our relationships. Right. But how do we know a boat is effective if it stays afloat, if it stays steady? And that's the primary objective of the boat is to endure the waves, to get from destination to destination. So why can't our love do the same? Why can't our relationships look like that? When I think about unselfishly, I have this quote from Thomas, Thomas Merton. It says, true happiness is found in unselfish love. A love which increases in proportion as it is shared. It's a good quote. You know, Jesus paves a truth that we will face conflict. We're going to deal with people that disagree with us. We're going to have to wrestle with hurt and pain caused in our relationships. We're going to have to tell people what they don't want to hear, even when it's the right thing to do. To call each other higher. Tensions will come. And although conflict is inevitable, although conflict will happen, if love is absent, we won't achieve the resolution the way God sees fit and appropriate. Right? We need love. It is part of the equation. Because when love is absent, relationships become shallow. There will be more hurt people battling with distrust. Problems and issues will plague our church, will plague our community. So we need to allow truth and love to prevail together, amen? We need to love one another, uh, both with compassion, but also with truth. And so in conclusion, I want to do a little quick exercise with you guys. You guys ready? All right, this is going to be quick, and then we're going to have communion. Okay, so I want you guys to partner up. I want you guys to, to kind of choose your little, to choose your little pair. And if you guys are doing threes and stuff, you guys can, uh, maybe one can be an observer or whatever, alright? And so, 
Imagine a relationship with something or with someone you care about, but with whom you disagree. And don't, if it's the person next to you, don't tell them that. All right. Just think about a relationship whom you love and cherish, but you may disagree. And I want you guys to make to hold out your left hand and to make a fist, make a fist, hold it tightly, make a fist. Imagine that you are holding deeply to your convictions. Okay. Hold them tightly and feel and feel your commitment to them. Feel, feel your commitment. Now, without letting go, so keep keep your fist in a ball. Extend your right hand and shake the person, shake your partner's hand, while holding on to holding on to your commitment, holding on to your convictions. All right, are we, are we all doing this? this is, these are pretty clear instructions. Okay. Don't let go of your convictions with your left hand and don't let go of your handshake with your right. Okay, we're done. Great. All right. What you guys just did, your stance, that dynamic represents the kind of emotional maturity that Jesus models for us. Because as he clearly defined himself, as he clearly never let go of his convictions, as he clearly was committed to who he was, as he journeyed to love the world, he also invited others time and time again to think about their own response to Jesus and thought about how those relationships that he had with people were just full of grace, was full of truth, was full of compassion and full of love. And so for our communion today, we're going to look at this passage in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, and it's entitled, Walk in Unity. And Paul writes here, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Brothers and sisters, let's walk in unity in times of conflict. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's reflect on the communion. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much for this time to uh, partake in this in communion with you. God, I love this uh, this image uh, that Jason painted last week of really this time is is really our kind of journey uh, to the past uh, in hopes that it can clarify our present to then propel us in our future, Lord. And I hope that uh, these passages today and and it shows us, God, that. Really, your son was more than our savior. Your son was more than our ticket to heaven, God, but he was the perfect example on how to deal with the tension and the conflict in our lives. God, I think about all the people that have scorned him. I think about all the teachers of the law that denied him, uh, that wanted to kill him. I think about even how his disciples or followers failed him at times. That conflict happened, that tension happened in his life. But not only did Jesus persevere in who he was and pursued the journey that is to the cross, but did it in a way that exemplified deep connection 
and value of relationships, Lord. I pray that we can do the same. Lord, I pray that we can reflect on all our relationships here and even the relationships that are not here. Lord, I pray that we can continue to grow in this time of conflict. God, that it can be a chance for us to exemplify more and more to be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for this communion. Help it to be purifying to our souls and to connect to the cross and to be more like your son. I pray for everything in mighty son's name. Amen.